Hola, mi gente. It is alt Latino producer Ana Maria Sayer here, solo on the mic. Felix is out taking some much-deserved time off, so I'm taking this time as an opportunity to let you all in on a little secret. I've been racking my brain trying to think of what to get Felix for the holidays, and all I keep thinking about is how he loves Alt Latino more than anything in the world. Well, anything besides the Grateful Dead, but you know. So that's when I came up with a, not to toot my own horn, brilliant plan to come to all of you with a small request that will make one wonderful Theo very happy. If you're able to give anything at all to your local member station and show them that you love Alt Latino and everything Felix pours into it, you'd be making his holiday dreams come true. It's been an absolutely phenomenal year for us. A whole tiny desk takeover, loads of awesome reporting, tons of really exciting video content, and most importantly, I was added to the team. So, if you loved what we did this year and you want to put a smile on Theo's face, then go to donate.npr.org slash altlatino. That's donate.npr.org slash altlatino. We rely on listeners like you, so please go hit the link and give if you can. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Ana Maria Sayer. This week, we're going to tap into the buzz that is out there around the very high-profile remake of the film West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg. There's a lot of chatter out there about the film. Seems there are different schools of thought, people who embrace the film and its complicated legacy, a kind of love-hate relationship, maybe a love-to-hate-watch relationship, I don't know. The early 1960s original music and film were the very first times many Puerto Ricans saw themselves on stage and on screen. Rita Moreno's interpretation of Anita earned her an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, the first, and for decades only, Latina to win such an accolade. She is a producer and has a role in the remake. There are people also rejecting the remake for many different reasons, including what some see as a continuation of some stereotypes or pandering to the audience. But what seems to be at the core of all of this discussion is the idea of Puerto Rican identity. And since the story takes place in New York, in both the 1961 original and the remake, we thought we'd have a discussion about the development of the contemporary New York Puerto Rican identity, or New Yorican identity. In order to do this, we invited three very special guests to join us for a panel this week. Lillian Jimenez is a filmmaker and academic. Papoleto Melendez is a poet, teacher, and activist who helped found the New Yorican movement and Tomas Colon worked in finance and nonprofits in the Bronx. Now, the thing that all three of these panelists have in common is that they are true New Yorkans. Born in New York in the time of West Side Story's inception, they were the people who were creating, the people who were the architects of the identity that West Side Story attempts to emulate. 
So stay right there as we pass the mic over to our wonderful colleague, Mandali, and listen to a story about real New Yorican experience. Hello, this is Mandalit Del Barco from NPR, and welcome to our guests Lillian, Bapo, and Thomas. I know that all of you grew up in New York, but Bapo and Lillian, you were both about 11 when the first West Side Story came mm-hmm. out. What do you remember as your Puerto Rican identity then, and, and your parents' identity as Puerto Ricanos in New York? You know, talking about Puerto Rican identity, I think is in a really complicated issue um, because we're so multifaceted. So we come from this colony in the Caribbean um, that had citizenship uh, imposed on it. I grew up in New York. I was born in New York, but my parents came from Cabo Roa and San Sebastián, and their social formation was very rooted in island culture and norms. And they really did pass that on to us. And so Spanish was my first language. And then I learned English, Alamala, because you had to learn English to survive. So as at 11, I think I had a really confused a sense of who Puerto Ricans were. I could look at my family. I grew up in an extended family. Um, I grew up in West Harlem. So I was very close to African-Americans as well. So I think that's a really distinguishing feature of many of the New Yorkans of New York is that, you know, we're really close to African-American culture. But at at 11, I was really confused because I kept thinking, well, they say we're American, but we're sort of second-class Americans and we're treated so differently. And I knew at 11 that we were not uh, first-class citizens, um, that we were really treated very poorly. And even though we were very light-skinned and we could pass for white, you know, we always spoke Spanish um, and we always identified as Puerto Rican. So we were treated very different, very working class, um, I would say, um, complicated uh, sense of identity because, you know, our, our birth certificates, I think for most of us, our birth certificates said we were white. And so we, my parents talked about us as if we were white. And I kept saying, but we're n- not white because they don't treat us like we're white. So I think that sort of sense of, you know, lack of privilege and, and still retaining some privilege as a light-skinned Puerto Rican. So um, I wasn't quite so sophisticated at 11, but I just knew that something was wrong uh, in the way that my mother would, you know, compel us to be hyper polite to Americans. Um, and so I think that colonial uh, subordination was really socialized in us at an early age. I grew up in El Barrio in East Harlem. I grew up on 111th Street in 1964. Wow. We moved to the Bronx then. So my mother is from Corozal, and my father's from Santurce, and he was a musician. And uh, they met, y tenía un escándalo en Puerto Rico, so they had to run away to New York. So <laughs> I was conceived in Puerto Rico and born in New York. Very total New Yorican. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know, that's it, man. You know, more New Yorican than me, una cucaracha que, que vino con Colón. anyway so yeah that's quintessential now growing up my friends were the black that lived in the building our building was like the united nations had everybody jewish black Uh, it was it was cool like you walked through a building six story on 11th street and every floor had something else different music yiddish jazz spanish you forget it everything going on it was great I was in the middle, I was born in 1950. 
Um, so my, all my friends were either born in, in the late 40s or the early 50s. So that was my ganga. I was the only Puerto Rican in my ganga. And we roamed the streets and fought Italians and blah, blah. And, and we hung out on the West Side. We went to the Apollo, you know. And we saw West Side Story being filmed on 110th Street. Uh, whoa. Yeah. We could not use the backyard of the of the school building that's there that was there uh, that year because they took over. Now I got some tidbits. If you look at the movie uh, when they're shooting on a ten, when they're singing "Land Yeah, right, that year," then they're singing in the street. You will see the water tanks in the background that are between First and Second Avenue. That's one hundred and tenth Street. We would sit on the other the sidewalk and watch them dance about and cameras and everything. At the time, there was this stereotype of Boricuas that they arrived in New York and they were everybody was poor and, and violent and reproducing. All these things happening, um, what did you think about the representation when you saw that original West Side Story? What did you think they were doing? Well, to me, you know, the, the guys in the gang, you know, except the fact that they weren't Puerto Rican, looked the part. They did look like the gang members. I know they had sleeves rolled up, bandanas, you know. They were stereotypical of the reality. Um, I thought the dancing was exquisite, especially the white girls, the Italian girls could to kick it in, uh, in, in, in the, when they do their number. And even as a little kid, I didn't like sink back in the ocean either. Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion. Let it sink back in the ocean. <laughs> and I didn't have no politics, because at that time I was basically Puerto Rican black, Negro, you know, colored. I became Puerto Rican later when I was 19. Thomas, you were a little bit younger than that. You were born in 1960, so you saw the film later on TV. Yeah, I'm I was trying to figure figure out when it was a <clears throat> it was a huge thing. I grew up with the album, and I remember being very impacted by the film. I don't know if I was eight or ten or, or what. I'm a I'm a New Yorkerian born in 1960, uh, born in Queensbridge. Then we moved to the Bronx in, when I was one or two. I grew up in uh, I grew up in the Soundview. Uh, era. My father was white. I didn't know him. So culturally, I'm completely New Yorkian, but I look white. And then my sister, she had another absent father. She was black. And we both <laughs> from Jump Street identified as Puerto Ricans. We were both Puerto Ricans. And, and the excitement around West Side Story when it was premiering on network television, a lot of it had to do with, with, the, with, with the quality of it as a piece of art, as a uh, the, the songs that we had heard growing up, but the real excitement was to see Puerto Ricans on TV or somewhere. Or so it was maybe 1968, 69, maybe 1970. I'm not sure when. I think it was on 72 on TV. Oh, 72. Oh, yeah. That, that would that would put me in junior high school already. Well, maybe. Well, any anyway, I remember discussing it as a kid. Wow, Puerto Ricans were on TV. We know everyone knew Rita Moreno already as a child, I was just very excited at the depiction of Puerto Ricans. And we would talk about that and 
And we're, I would talk about that with my childhood best friend, who was a it's interesting how the 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 the, the Puerto Ricans are portrayed as more. We thought it was cool that we the, the sharks were always with the chicks, you know, and the the jets were always prancing around and dancing around. And we thought that was cool. <laughs> little little, you know, excitement at cultural excitement at seeing your people, your tribe, um, you know, American global media. And right after that, right in the early '70s, then we began to get more. Uh, of the picture. But West Side Story itself was very impactful for me at that age, at that time, because there was nothing else. Papuleto, you were involved with the establishment of the New Eurekan Poets Movement. When you and the other poets started writing about being New Eurekan, what was it that you wanted people to know about mm -hmm. New Eurekanness? Yeah. You know, we talk about like, okay, you know, West Side Story identifies us, has identified us for 50 years, you know, but then the New Eurekan Poets Movement. I'm attributed to being a founder of the New Eurekan Poets Movement. We were giving voice to ourselves. We were self-identifying then. We were speaking up for ourselves trilingually, you know, in English, Spanish, and Spanglish. You know, we had a mission. We were talking for our people and not for ourselves. The idea of the New Eurekan, you propelled that through your poetry. Lillian, you made a film about a very famous Puerto Rican, Antonia Pandoja. She also worked to create a positive Puerto Rican identity after World War II. Stories about her and other people are not necessarily like, you know, being made and remade on Broadway and on in major motion pictures. I mean, do you think that there should be more of those kind of depictions of Puerto Ricans and then later New Eurekans? When I started earlier, I said, you know, we've always organized. And so the Puerto Rican community has been depicted as this passive, you know, subordinate group of people. And in reality, there were pockets of us that were organized. And so, you know, there's several people that I want to mention because they were really critical to the development of this new New Eurekan identity without even knowing it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Evelyn Antonetti um, mm -hmm. was a, a, a key figure in the Bronx, uh, but she was a key figure in the city. And she mm -hmm. was this Puerto Rican woman who was very progressive. She was like the godmother to the to the young lords and all the progressive yeah. groups. She was somebody who, as even as a young woman, she was with uh, Marco uh, Vito Marco Antonio, mm -hmm. who was an Italian who fought for Puerto Ricans and who fought for Puerto Rican uh, independence. So, um, you know, here's somebody who comes to the United States and, and I mean, she was just an amazing, powerful force teaching parents how to, you know, really advocate for their children in the South Bronx schools. There's, you know, Gilberto Gerena Valentin, who started at Congreso del Pueblo, you know, who was a person who was a laborer. I mean, he worked in the unions. He worked in, 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 the, in the service industries. Uh, he worked at everything. And he was really critical because they would go, people from Congreso del Pueblo, which were all these little hometown, you know, la gente de Cabo Rojo, de Barranquilla, whatever, they would all go to the airport and meet the incoming planes of the migrants who were coming mm. in. And they would say, oh, you're from Barranquillas, mira, vete para 111. There's a whole bunch of people there, look up Tomas, and Tomas is going to help you find an apartment and a job. And that social network was mm -hmm. in existence. He was a fascinating character. He helped to start the Puerto Rican Day Parade. You know, a lot of these young people don't know about Gilberto Herrera Valentin. I mean, he was mm -hmm. an incredible force. He he chained himself to, to City Hall uh, in protest of something. I don't even remember what it was. But what a character. Antonia Pantoja started Aspira. 
1961, because again, as I said earlier, there was an 85% dropout rate of children and not just in high school, we're talking middle school and elementary school. And my mother was one of those dropouts. My mother dropped out in the sixth grade. So I'm, I'm perfectly aware of the fact that, you know, there was this high percentage of children that were dropping out. And so she said, we have to start this leadership group that will train the leaders of the future so we can do for ourselves. You know, I think the fiction film should be made about Antonia Pantoja. I did a screening of the film before it was finished at somebody's house. And there was a, a, a young African-American guy who was like an advertising guy who was married to a Puerto Rican designer. And at the end of the screening, he said, you know, you should do a, a, a narrative film because she was gangster. And I thought, gangster? She was yeah, a gangster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I thought, you know gangsta. what? She was gangster. gangster. Yeah. She absolutely <laughs> was gangster. She just defied everybody. And she said, we're going to do this. And we don't care. They said, you can't have those counselors in our schools. And she said, they're not counselors. They're organizers. And we're having them in the schools. I mean, she bogarted those people. Yeah. And she got what she got. So bilingual education happened because she and a cohort of young leaders um, got together and sued the the basically sued the the board of ed and the court then ruled uh, a consent decree where you had to have bilingual education and you know years years later we we're at this conference that she organized when she was still alive and this Polish kid gets up at the conference and says I can speak English because of Puerto Ricans and we were like what he said I can speak English because of Puerto Ricans because um, you started bilingual education. And I was in a bilingual class for Polish kids. And we were like absolutely stunned because we had this narrow definition of bilingual education. Some of us had a narrow definition. So there are multiple stories here. These are, you know, feel good um, stories of struggle. They have enormous potential in terms of drama. They're not being made. Why? A hundred million dollars goes towards the remake of West Side Story, $100 million could have funded, you know, how many films? Now, what, you haven't seen the, the new West Side Story, but you've probably heard about it. You've heard that there was like consultants and historians and cast members who are Latinx, not all of them, but some of them being Boricua. And they, you know, they put the Puerto Rican flag on display. They say La Borinquena, and, and they had a lot of it in Spanish. What do you think about this remake from what you've heard? And do you think that will change what people think about Puerto Ricans, or at least Puerto Ricans back then in New York? It's always going to be insignificant until we create and control the content. This is, I mean, this is fine. People are getting work. I have nothing against West Side Story. I live in, in Spain now. I've been in Europe for 20 years. And I have uh, a young family. I have two young sons, seven and five. And I'm teaching them that you're Puerto Rican because that's easier to grok right now. When they get a little older, I'll say, no, actually, you're New Yorkian. It's, it, it, it's a very different, different thing. And it, as far as the, the, the movie, The West Side Story, I, I always add in Miranda's recent movies, which I haven't seen either. I didn't see In the Heights. I didn't see Hamilton. Okay, I'm happy that at least he's creating the content. He's hiring a lot of people. They're doing a lot of things. But but the medium itself, until it gets to the level where we where 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 New Yorkans could could have content control and, and creative and artistic control and the backing to make a movie like Moonlight or something like that, 
And I know it'll take work, work to get there, but that will be significant. You know, as far as, you know, are they, okay, they're singing that some of the lyrics are in Spanish and this, that. Yeah, cool, but it, for me, it's not terribly interesting. It's good that people are getting work, good that people are doing things. But for me, the, the most significant artistic contribution right now is books and, and writing. And I think I'm thinking more about, you know, when I became a New Yorker, probably around 10 or 12. And that happened because my mother was the oldest of five. She had me as a teenager and she was the oldest of 10 cousins. So I was surrounded by aunts and uncles who were young Puerto Ricans in the Bronx doing young Puerto Rican things in the Bronx and young Puerto Rican experiences in the Bronx and things like that. So I heard them and I remember hearing them discuss down these mean streets. Mm-hmm. And I got to I got to buy that and I got to read that. And then it started there and it started then then I learned about the the, the New York Poets Cafe by watching Short Eyes. For me, it's 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 still books and literary and, and you know, poetry. And that's when discussions like this will, will become real significant when, when it's content control, creative control. Yeah, there should be a lot more representation. Yeah, there are some very moving stories to tell. At this point, they're being written more than being produced in, in, in a film. Lillian, I wondered what you thought of this uh, new West Side Story and if you think it's going to change the uh, the kind of the image of Puerto Ricans at all uh, on screen or, for, you know, people are watching this who are not from New York. That's what they see. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, you mentioned that uh, the Puerto Rican flag, the correct Puerto Rican flag with the light blue color is, um, you know, in the film and that, you know, the the sharks sing La Borinquena and they're not singing the watered down version. They're singing the Lola right. Rodriguez de Tio version, which is the revolutionary an anomaly because in 1961, um, you know, um, the Nationalist Party of Puerto Rico in 1950 had an insurrection. In 1954, Lolita Lebron and four compatriots went to Congress and shot it up. Um, And so being a nationalist was terrible. There was the La Ley de la Mortareza, Mortareza, whatever, I can't even say it properly, um, which was a gag order, basically. You couldn't sing the Puerto Rican uh, and uh, revolutionary anthem. You couldn't exhibit the flag, the Puerto Rican flag. You could only show the, the United States flag. So it's an anomaly for 1961 teenagers who are, are, are we don't know if they're recent arrivals or not, um, are singing a revolutionary song that's associated with the Nationalist Party. So when I heard that, I thought, well, if they had introduced a kid who said, my father told me that in Puerto Rico, we were not allowed to sing this and we should sing this, then at least there's an organic mm-hmm. way for the introduction of that of that song. But it's an oxymoron because people in 1961 didn't even know that song. That came up as a consequence of you know, the MPI, Movimiento Pro Independencia, Puerto Rican Socialist Party, the Young Lords, uh, Puerto Rican Student Union, Resistencia uh, Puerto Ricana. You have all these political groups who are advocating for Puerto Rican studies, for Puerto Rican history, and then <coughs> La Borinquena because, you know, this key song of resistance. 
So, you know, resistance was happening on a very different level in 1961. You know, you had police who were killing Puerto Ricans and Puerto Ricans rioted. It wasn't just African-Americans. It was Puerto Ricans who rioted in Brooklyn. They rioted, I mean, just in so many different ways and places. People really did resist. That was sort of an externalized representation of a resistance that wasn't conscious. It wasn't politically conscious in that generation. Um, in that age group. There were nationalists in New York, but they were hidden because the police were after them. The FBI was after them. And so, um, you know, I would hear stories about people living in East Harlem and, and you know, El Bodeguero was with the, the Nationalist Party uh, and supported the Nationalist Party. And in 1954, they came and they arrested him because they thought he was, you know, part of the, the nationalists that had... Um, in 1950, tried to shoot Truman, for God's sakes, at Blair House. Um, so uh, it was just an anomaly. I just thought this is a, trying to contemporize this film uh, in a way that just doesn't feel authentic. So uh, that was my concern. The other thing I heard was that in the in the in the rape scene or the potential rape scene, that it's the white women who defend Anita. Uh, and again, I think it's, you know, I have such enormous respect for Kushner. I think Kushner is a genius. I just wish he hadn't written the script. Uh, his talents were just not used well here. Look, I think they should have had a Puerto Rican co-writer. They should have had a Puerto Rican do it. Anyway, he did it. And I'm sure he wanted to make these women more feminist, a more feminist perspective so that the audience, right, which has a, a, a sort of a consciousness now about feminism, even if they don't consider themselves feminists, want to see you know, empowered women. I mean, so I'm sure that that's why that was done. But in 1961, it's not likely that something like that would have happened because, you know, women fought against rape. Women fought for the laws against domestic violence. Um, and it's taken decades for that to, to be what it is today. Uh, so it just feels like, um, you know, you're trying to, to, what is it? Put a, a square peg in a round hole. Uh, it's three white men who are telling the story of Puerto Ricans yet again. That just doesn't make sense to me. You know, somebody said recently at a Center for Puerto Rican Studies a symposium on West Side Story that, you know, we, we had gangs back then and we have gangs now. And I thought, you know, we have working class people. Uh, we had working class people back then. My parents worked, you know, um, everybody in my neighborhood worked. Very few people didn't work. And when they did, they were supported by the rest of the community. We had community uh, uh, care for each other. You know, I mean, there were these extended families that lived in our communities. That's not represented in these films. It doesn't show the strength and the resilience of the community. So those are the issues that I have with these films. Listen, you want to show drug addicts? You know, in Fort Apache, they showed more drug addicts than you know what to do with, including prostitutes. We have drug addicts and we have prostitutes even today. But can you show the working class people who are at bus line 55 in the South Bronx going to clean the toilets, going to the hotels, going to do all of the work in the service industry that nobody else wants to do? You know, we're invisible in that way. So for me, it's we need to have a much more complex sense of who we are. We are African, we are European, we are indigenous, and we need to be able to like articulate that and represent that through literature, through poetry, on the screen, so that people understand that we've got this incredibly complicated history. And that basically, 
we're a colony of the United States. And in spite of that, some of us have survived and done well, and we continue to advocate for the independence of Puerto Rico. I want to throw that in. Yeah, people don't <laughs> and, usually survive uh, colonization. That's right. People don't. The reason why we aren't making our own films is because we have rich entertainers and people who just aren't investing in, in our own artistic community. You know, they want to be part of the monster that, you know, I got a poem. They want to be part of the intestines of the monster that ate them. So the thing is that, um, you know, we need, we need to be independent. You know, you have Del Toro doing films and things like that, you know. We need people to, 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 they got fucking millions of dollars. I'm in SAG. I know how rich some people are about, but just looking at their goddamn credits, because I get royalties too. Mm. So I know, I go, oh man, you know? And um, so that we have a lot of rich Puerto Ricans and that could do something, and instead they want to make films that glorify themselves. Like, not to point anybody out, but the film J-Lo made, you know, about La Vol, you know, there's a shitty fucking movie that was just vanity filled. Is who gets more camera time? You know that. Okay, so it seems that West Side Story is uh, the new critical race theory version of West Side Story. <laughs> and so my suggestion is that if this is a successful um, enterprise and endeavor. Uh, to make these classical movies over again with genuine actors that I'm looking forward to the remake of The Birth of a Nation. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> That's it. Okay. 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 From, from the poet's mouth. There we go. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for talking. And there's so much more we can say about all of this. And I'm sure... If you see the film, you might have some more thoughts about this. But I really appreciate uh, you you joining us today. Thank you to our guests, Lillian Jimenez, Thomas Colon, and Papo Leto. Thank you for your time and for your thoughts to all of you. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you so much to our panelists. We enjoyed getting a taste of what life was like in a real New Yorkan community. Thank you, of course, to our incredible colleague, Mandalita Barco for an amazing panel. Thank you to everyone who helped out and supported this episode. Our intern, Kat, we love you always. And for some incredible music, West Side Story may be a lot of things, but we do love the soundtrack more than anything. Make sure to follow us on socials. Think about that donation link that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode. And as always, we love you all. See you next week.